Hi and welcome to NTI Spotlight, the show that shines a spotlight on all things vessels, vehicles and equipment. I'm your host Luke Muller, NTI's Communications Manager and today we're going to be talking about some of the hot topics in marine cargo and logistics. Uh, Container Geddon, what is it? How is it affecting us? Uh, The Australian waterfront, there's a lot going on there that we're going to unpack. And dry goods versus refrigerated goods. What's being prioritised and how is it getting in and out of the country? To talk with me today, I've got two very special guests. We've firstly got Andrew Kidd, NTI's Head of Marine. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. Awesome to be here. And we've got a returning guest today in Kurt Heron, NTI's Logistics Risk Engineer. G'day, Kurt. Nice to be invited back. I didn't think I'd get a second gig. So let's kick off with one of the scary terms that I've encountered in the last couple of weeks, container-geddon. It sounds ominous. Uh, Kurt, tell us what it is. Are we really facing a container-geddon? I I love container-geddon. I think it's a fantastic word. Um, Look, we are seeing some container issues globally. There's there's no question of that. Is it a full container-geddon? My personal opinion, not so much. I believe it's more about being able to move empty containers away from import hubs and get them back to where they need to be. Um, However, when people do talk container-geddon, they talk about uh, the fact that you cannot get containers for what you need and the ones you can get uh, tend to be lower quality than what you would normally accept. It is a global issue. There's no question of that. Um, You'll find that in the export hub areas like Asia and uh, Southeast Asia and North Asia is where you're finding the majority of those we have no container situations. The flip side of that is your import heavy regions like uh, the USA or Australia. You'll find an abundance of empty containers that can't be taken away from these regions and back into those export hubs. The ripple effect of that then is that people who are exporting are getting lower quality containers than what they normally would. So uh, food quality products are going in older containers than what they would accept previously. And and so what are some of the outcomes that could come from that? If food goes in an older quality container, what can happen to it? Look, the obvious one is that with older containers, poorer quality containers you do get the wear and tear from day-to-day shipping. You have the rust spots, you have the uh, the sections of container that aren't holding up as well as the rest. When you're looking at items like food products, um, in Australia specifically, we have food quality containers, which are containers under 10 years old, uh, freshly painted, no rust, no stains, no dirt. Uh, if you're looking at items that would normally go in those high quality containers, using the lower containers, what you may end up with are odours or stains or damage to your product based on the, the quality of that container that you get. So Andrew, from the insurance side, what, how is this affecting Australian businesses? I think the container quality is the real issue. Um, we all forget that a container is really a simple steel box but it leads a really hard life in a short period of time. Mm. It's on the open seas, in salt water, in fresh water, in in rain, hail or shine. It is dropped from different heights depending on how good forklift drivers are or straddle crane operators are 
and they get knocked around. So for us, we're seeing a rise in claims coming out of poor quality containers being used. And it might be simple things like a rust hole that lets water in. So when it rains, the goods inside the container get wet. The cardboard disintegrates, the the tins get rusty, and then we've got a claim. So we're seeing a rise in those, and it's purely from lower grade containers being used because the better quality ones just aren't available. But this is a global problem. Every insurer is talking about quality of containers and what the downstream impacts are on cargo shipped inside them are. And so short term, while this is a problem, is there anything that businesses can be doing about it? It comes down to your pre-shipment inspections of your containers. So uh, most people who export will do some form of pre-shipment inspection. So they'll go around the outside, they'll look around, they'll check the seals of the doors, and it's it's predominantly visual. Um, and to make sure that uh, the stamping of the validity of the container is there, um, all of that to get it ready to go for shipment. The big thing here is vigilance now. So we talked about just then... Um, you know, rust holes in the side of a container. That's quite easy to see. When it's on the side of a container and it's a hole, it's very easy. What's less uh, obvious are things like deteriorating door seals that are brittle. Um, Whilst they look fine, if you're not running your hand across it, you may never know. And then when your product gets to the other end, there's moisture inside the container and you've got no way to find out why. The other main thing to do is making sure to light test your containers. Now, a lot of people don't like to do it. Um, it is quite overwhelming if you've never done one before. So what, what is that? What... So light testing a container is essentially a two-person job for safety. And you put one person inside that container and you close that container up. Then that person checks for light emitting through the container. So whether that be at a door seal, whether it be uh, at the roof, that's the easiest way to find out if your container is actually sealed. Sounds simple and terrifying at the same time. You mentioned before all of these shipping containers that aren't being used at the moment. Where are they? We know from numbers that a lot are sitting in the USA, particularly around California at the moment, um, because obviously... The U.S. imports a lot of goods from Asia, but they don't export as many containerized manufactured goods. So we know there's a lot of empty containers sitting there. We know that from Australia, a lot of our empty containers have been rushed back to Asia. There's been a focus on returning empty containers into particularly China and other manufacturing countries just to fill them up with goods to export again. So we're seeing that there's just a shortage everywhere you, where you don't expect. And again, this is one of those things... We've not seen it before, and the entire global supply chain is grappling with how we solve it. So it's a moving feast as to where the containers are and who's got them and who needs them. And is that something that you think will get uh, some kind of intervention to fix it, or is it something that will fix itself over time, or it's not that simple? That's the million-dollar question (laughs) right there. It's Um, not that simple. (laughs) In the, in the US, so I, I read an article recently, the US has approximately, in, um, in the port of Long, uh, Long Beach and LA, they currently have approximately 65,000 empty containers sitting there waiting for re-export. Now, um, from that end, shipping lines will bring what they call sweeper vessels in, which are essentially empty. 
Um, they come in, they collect as many empties as they can in that time frame, and then they move on and they either move to another port to pick up more empties or they head back to where they're needed, um, you know, in predominantly those export heavy markets. The downside to that is that every vessel that calls into a terminal to pick up empty containers isn't picking up export goods. So that congestion and that backlog is still there. And if that sweeper vessel has to sit out at Anchorage for five days waiting, is it worth coming in and getting those empties, knowing that you're stopping A, cargo coming into the country, but also any exports that are going out as well? The other thing to think of is if we go back a little over 12 months ago when COVID lockdowns first started, we saw there was a lack of space to actually park containers in Australia. We had containers coming in, but of course shops and factories were closed. So those containers couldn't be delivered, so they sat in container parks. So this is a moving problem of whether they're full containers or empty containers, and there's no one controlling entity that can move these containers and say, well, they should be there, move them there. You've got different shipping companies that have their own uh, business plans, their own commercial realities of moving freight or moving empty containers. So I think we're in this problem for some time yet. There won't be a magic wand that's waved and problem solved. So these shipping containers that are damaged, they might be rusted, they might have holes, they might not pass the light test. What happens to them? Do they get fixed? Do they go to a, the, the, the great shipping container graveyard somewhere? Currently, that graveyard doesn't exist. If it is able to be shipped, it is being used. Um, when it comes to damaged containers, shipping lines uh, contract out to container parks uh, that handle that sort of stuff. Uh, predominantly in Australia, with the high cost of materials and labour, small uh, damages will be made, will be repaired. Um, if they're under a certain amount of money, usually it's about under $400, they'll repair here. If it's going to be a structural fix or a more expensive fix for whatever reason, they're usually exported out empty and sent back up into Asia where they can be repaired for, for substantially less than what they would charge here. They make nice garden sheds as well, I'd if a little large. Very expensive swimming pools as well. So uh, we'll continue to watch as that situation unfolds, Hey, where these shipping containers uh, end up and, and whether they get back home. There's been a lot of coverage in the Australian media on the Australian waterfront. And the name that keeps popping up is Patrick's. Tell us who they are and why they keep being mentioned. So on the Australian waterfront, you have, uh, on the eastern seaboard, you have four main terminal operators. So you have Patrick Stevedores, you've got DP World, you've got uh, Hutchison's, and you have VICT, which is the Victorian International Container Terminal. Uh, in Adelaide, they have their own, which is Flinders, but on the other major ports around Australia, uh, Patrick's, DP World and Hutchison are the main players. So, Kurt, just on that, historically, we would have referred to these as wharfies. Uh, to the workers on the waterfront, yes, they're wharfies. The terminals themselves are a little different, um, but basically the wharfies are the employees of the terminal. What we're seeing across the waterfront at the moment is essentially the culmination of two years' worth of enterprise bargaining agreements, or EBAs, between the Maritime Union of Australia, the MUA, and the terminal operators. We love a good uh, 
What is it? Acronym. Good, <laughs> thank you. I, I was going to jump in and ask, but you've saved me the trouble. It's it's all about the acronyms. But essentially what, what has happened is as the enterprise bargaining agreements come due, new negotiations happen between the unions and the terminal operators over the working conditions of those workers. And not to get bogged down in the detail, but most of the terminal operators over the past two years have been able to come to an arrangement with the MUA. Um, the one that is currently outstanding is the Patrick Stevedores one, which is what we're seeing in the media currently. So what's the impact of that standoff for customers and businesses? So what we're seeing on the waterfront is a series of protected industrial actions that the Maritime Union have put, placed on the terminals. Um, the main one that gets the most airtime are work stoppages. Uh, back in the day, they would call them strikes or, or pickets. Um, that's not what they are. They're called protected industrial action. Um, they have times of stoppage of work, which is their main form of what gets into the media. So the ripple effects of that, uh, amongst other protected industrial action outside of those work stoppages, what we're finding is slower turnaround times for containers, for vessels, and for the trucks that go inside that terminal. And at this time of year, when we're trying to come out of that COVID lockdown mentality, this is not what we want to see. We want to see more exchange of containers, both in and out, which includes those empty containers that we spoke about beforehand. Uh, but we also want to see you know, more productivity and better movements for what's happening in that terminal so what does that mean in the lead-up for Christmas as well? Are the kids going to get presents this year? That's what everyone wants to know. Well, one thing I've been saying for about four months in every webinar we've done, every internal memo that's gone out, my last statement has been the same. And it was the best time to do your Christmas shopping was two months ago. The next best time is now. Unfortunately, the next best time was a month ago. So... Are we going to see, you know, you talk about uh, Christmas and, and all that. We will see products on shelves. I don't think it's going to be the, the bare shelves that uh, the media are predicting. But what I will say is that if you're ordering online, be prepared to wait. And so the work stoppages and the other action uh, with Patrick's, what does that mean for importers, exporters, customers, businesses, Andrew? It's just delays. That's the, it's pure and simple as the shipping schedules are less reliable. We're seeing vessels arrive at port late, um, longer periods of time to unload those vessels. So as Kurt mentioned, trucks being delayed in getting things off the port, we're just seeing delays where we really don't need them. Um, we're concerned particularly for perishable goods. So meat, fruit, vegetables, all those items with a shelf life we're seeing them being impacted in getting to their destinations in a timely fashion. The other impact on customers we're seeing is we're seeing a, a shift for, for some clients to move to air freight. Air freight's reliable, it's very quick. So for perishable high value items, think lobsters, uh, they're moving to air freight where they can. Um, we're also seeing the shipping lines move to dry freight as well, so they're not as keen to take refrigerated goods in some circumstances as well. 
there's been some reports uh, in in the media as well about dry cargo being prioritised over refrigerated cargo. Now, I always thought it was the opposite. You thought right. It, it was the opposite. I finally got one right. <laughs> well done. It always was that way. Uh, refrigerated cargo was a priority over dry cargo for one pure fact. Refrigerated cargo was so much more expensive. Uh, even when freight rates in general were low, refrigerated cargo, whilst lower, was still quite high comparably to what dry cargo was. The issue that's coming up now is that if a shipping line knows it's going to sit off the port of Long Beach for three weeks, what is the impact on the perishable cargo they carry? So the question being asked around the world is essentially, if we know that it's going to sit off Anchorage in Los Angeles for three weeks is running the risk of having that cargo perish while sitting at Anchorage worth the small increase that we get in the freight rate? I think, Luke, this is a big so what point. And for particularly insurance brokers listening to this, the so what is talk to your customers, particularly those who export or import. Have their methods changed? Are they using air freight instead of sea freight all of a sudden? Now, for an insurance policy... There's different conditions of cover apply. So we need to make sure the customers still have the right coverage in place. If they're now shipping bigger shipments because shipping's not as reliable as it used to be and they're sending out three containers instead of one container, well, we need to look at their limits. We need to look at what countries they're going to. We need to just make sure that customers' policies are structured for the way they're operating at the moment. We know the world is somewhat confused, we know there's delays, but we just need to work with our customers. The other side is, if goods arrive at destination and they are damaged, early notification of claims. Because in a lot of circumstances, the shipping company might be responsible for the damage, but we need to hold them responsible very early. If we don't give them notice of loss within a certain number of days, then they can just walk away and say, well, sorry, you missed telling us within the time frame. We're not responsible. Thank you. So it's important for brokers to be on top of claims and tell us nice and early so we can work with the customers to manage those losses. Sounds like a great idea for our next podcast, time bars and notifications. I think that's all we've got time for today, guys. So thanks for uh, for joining us. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Kurt. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's been and fun. And we hope you join in in our next episode of NTI Spotlight.